Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Thank you for joining us for episode 42 of our series on Discovering the Old Testament. This time we will look at the book of Psalms, where we get into some of the nitty-gritty of ancient Israelite worship. The Psalms would be like a hymnal or a book of common prayer in today's religious setting. It is addressed to insiders, people who are already familiar with the worship practices that formed the context of these scriptures. Psalms, like hymns, are not where one would turn for closely reasoned theological treatises. In fact, we don't find anything of that sort at all in the Old Testament. If anything, this is where we might find bits of popular religion intruding on the official doctrines and dogmas. And yet, not only are the Psalms powerful expressions of religious feeling and spiritual elan, they carried sufficient authority that New Testament writers referred to them often as prophetic texts that foretold the events surrounding the rise of Christianity. Of all the books of the Old Testament, none are cited more often in the New Testament than the Psalms. The works we find here represent just about every aspect of ancient Israelite religion and its religious spectrum, from major public events such as a New Year festival or the enthronement of a new king, to community or private laments or songs of thanksgiving, or even both within the same psalm. Given their richness of expression and content, it's hardly a wonder that, among most medieval monastic communities, the new acolyte's primary task during his first year was to memorize all 150 of the psalms. The psalms are the one genre of literature in the Old Testament in which the writer is speaking directly to God, making the case for deliverance or blessing or offering thanks for the same. They are direct, personal, almost raw in their intimacy, but at the same time they tend to be surprisingly generic, which is an artifact of how they were most likely used historically. Speaking of how the Psalms were used and their presence in the New Testament, this is a good time to mention something rather unusual about the Psalms, at least from a modern perspective. I said that the Psalms were used as proof texts to refer to events that the early Christians believed were the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But the Psalms are most definitely not prophetic literature. They are, as we mentioned, hymns. Most current denominations are unlikely to make reference to a hymn in order to make a theological point, at least not with any kind of rigor. Many church hymnals include lyrics that represent traditions past that no longer obtain either because of changing modes of thought or even theological shifts. And yet the New Testament writers had no problem citing these hymns as prophecies fulfilled. Why is that? The most likely reason is because by this point in the history of Jewish religion, the rules for interpreting scripture were very elastic, to put it mildly. We've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but it bears repeating. Scripture, by virtue of its holy nature, 
could have multiple meanings, describing things past, present, or future. Most believed that even the most mundane scripture also had a hidden or deeper meaning apart from its prima facie meaning. A style of scriptural interpretation called Midrash used scripture as jumping off points for stories, fables, or lines of interpretation that went far, far beyond what the original author could possibly have imagined. But the scripture's sacred divine authority was considered sufficient to make such leaps and flights of fancy legitimate, up to a point. This was a fairly recent development in the Jewish exegetical tradition, which reminds us that scripture is often at the mercy of the needs and attitudes of each generation that seeks to extract meaning from it. While we look at this collection of songs and poems, I also want to take this opportunity to introduce some ways to help understand and appreciate Semitic poetry in general. Unlike other poetic forms found in languages other than English, Semitic poetry translates more smoothly uh, and with most of its literary devices largely intact, as we shall soon see. This is also important for reading the rest of the Old Testament, since obviously the Psalms are not the only place where we find poetry or poetic passages. The prophets, notably Isaiah among others, is filled with it, and you find snippets of it here and there in books that are otherwise mostly prose. The Psalms as a book do not have any particular subject order or thematic development from one end to the other. It is composed of a lot of smaller collections. Most of the psalms have some kind of label, such as of David, or of Asaph, or of Korah, which is less an indication of authorship than it is of which collection the psalm came from. Psalms from different collections tend to run in small bunches. These collections have in turn been organized into five rough books, probably to mimic the five books of the Torah. For example, Psalms 1 through 41 are an early collection of Davidic hymns. 42 through 72 is a collection of uh, hymns from the north, from Israel. 73 through 89 is a collection from the temple singers. Uh, 90 through 106 are psalms from a royal collection, perhaps for New Year celebrations. And Psalms 107 to 150 are a second and expanded Davidic royal collection. Each of these collections is marked by a special blessing of praise that serves as a boundary marker. Blessed by the Lord God of Israel for all eternity and forever. Amen. Amen. That's your marker point. We have a couple of instances of repetition. For example, Psalm 14 is the same as Psalm 53, except that the name of God is different. The first book, uh, chapters 1 through 41, uses the word Yahweh for God, while books, uh, book 2, Psalms 42 through 72, uses the name Elohim. These represent southern versus northern kingdom hymns, but they were combined into the present book, combining and preserving both collections. Many of the psalms carry the notation of David or something along these lines, but this does not necessarily mean that they were written by David. Scholars have identified several psalms that make reference to historical events that took place long after David's reign, 
but are nonetheless marked of David. But this designation could also refer to the psalm as a royal psalm, or part of a royal collection belonging to the king, who could be referred to as David in the same way that priests after the time of Aaron were sometimes called Aaron. Oscar Wilde, I believe, once observed while speaking of artistic creativity that talent invents, genius steals. It might not be quite accurate to call it stealing, but there does seem to have been a lot of borrowing going on in the composition of the Psalms. Examples of hymnology from outside lands, Egypt and even the local Canaanites, show some remarkably close parallels with biblical Psalms. In 1929, a body of texts were discovered in Syria written in a previously unknown Canaanite language scholars dubbed Ugaritic. As the number of texts grew and scholars learned how to read them, they discovered that this was a body of literature from the very Canaanites that the Old Testament so deeply reviles. It was startling, then, when they found common literary devices, imagery, and other traits between these texts and the biblical psalms. For instance, one psalm refers to God as the one who rides the clouds. This had long puzzled scholars, since this is clearly storm god imagery that is inconsistent with God's overall depiction in the Old Testament. The Ugaritic tablets showed that this was a common appellation for the Canaanite god Baal, apparently an author of one of the psalms borrowed from his Canaanite counterparts. To make matters worse, other psalms speak of a heavenly council, which must have caused some conniptions among the more strictly monotheistic members of the religious establishment. There are many such examples of this kind of borrowing. The Ugaritic texts also gave us a lot of insight into words that appear in the Bible, particularly in the Psalms. Ugaritic and Hebrew are sufficiently close linguistically that the addition of this new material provides a deeper sample for assessing the meaning of a number of Hebrew words, including some that have puzzled scholars for a long time. A more detailed discussion of the specifics of this is beyond the scope of this podcast. But most modern translations now incorporate these insights, ironically, due to ancient Israelite religion's arch enemies. did the Israelites use the Psalms? Our current thinking is that originally they formed part of the temple service. As each supplicant came and made an offering or engaged in some other kind of worship, a singer or group of singers provided musical accompaniment. One reason why scholars believe this is because in spite of their personal intensity, the Psalms are remarkably generic. 
They tend not to refer to specific situations, but rather types of issues for which one might offer thanks, supplication, or lamentation. A few psalms do make reference to larger, specific events, such as the loss of the temple or the ravages of the Edomites on Jewish territory. In other words, the psalms did not fall out of use after the destruction of Jerusalem and her temple. In fact, it's quite possible that the psalms found use outside of official religious rituals after King Josiah centralized all temple worship in Jerusalem. The many official sites and shrines that had once served the Jews before would be forbidden from offering sacrifices, but there would have been nothing preventing the people from gathering and reciting or singing psalms. During the Babylonian exile, psalms were probably even more important as a means of worship and keeping Jewish religion alive. Of all the scriptures in the Old Testament, and perhaps even the Bible as a whole, the Psalms are the most living of the various books because even today they are in constant use in both liturgical and private devotional contexts. Sometimes the modern contexts clash with ancient meanings due to entrenched traditions based on faulty readings, for example. However, one can gain a lot into the sense of psalmic and other forms of biblical poetry by learning about a few basic literary devices that show up pretty consistently. We are fortunate that ancient Semitic poetry had a very unusual sense of rhyme. Their poetry did not rhyme word sounds, as our poetry often does, but ideas. So a very basic couplet from Amos reads, but let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. By rhyming ideas, this allows for a much truer translation of this ancient poetry, since coming up with a translation that preserves the more typical kind of rhyming is very difficult, if not impossible. This is the trademark couplet form, or parallelismus membrorum, if you want to get technical. It is the poetic device most often found in Hebrew poetry. It is the use of two adjacent verses or lines that concern a particular idea. Keep in mind that this kind of parallelism is not necessarily restricted to poetry and songs. It can also appear in prose texts. By the same token, not all songs or poems in Hebrew use this device, or others we'll discuss shortly. There are, in fact, a few psalms that use none of the standard poetic devices. Another example of synonymous parallelism, one of my all-time favorites, is found in Isaiah 2, verse 4, and Micah 4, verse 3. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Another type of parallelism is antithetical. In other words, it contains two contrasting or even contradictory ideas. So in Proverbs 10, verse 1, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Grammatical parallelism is another form. It takes a grammatical construct that frames a condition in the first half of the line, then answers it in the second we need to range outside of Psalms, and in fact outside of the Old Testament, to find the best example of this, which is the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Another very important device is the inclusio. This consists of a line that starts and ends a section, a repeated line actually. It basically encompasses the section between those two occurrences. Psalm 8, for instance, begins with the line, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. It also ends with the same line, marking the end of the psalm. Incidentally, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through 7 also uses an inclusio, which is the expression, the law and the prophets. But one of the more intriguing devices is the chiasmus. This name refers to the Greek letter chi, or chi, which looks like our letter X. It is a form in which a series of key words appear and then are repeated in reverse order. The effect of this is that the apex of the, of the chiasmus is a couplet using the same key word or concept. The couplet at the center is usually the point of emphasis or carries some other special weight. There's an excellent example of chiasmus, three of them in a row, in fact, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Notice how the outside of each chiasm is negative, evil, darkness, bitter, while the apex of each is the antithesis, good, light, sweet. Isaiah loves chiasms. By the way, a very extensive and intricate chiasm makes up a large portion of the story of the flood in Genesis. See if you can find it. I'll give you a hint in that the apex is a single line rather than a couplet, and that line is, and God remembered Noah. Even with a deep knowledge of Semitic poetry in general, and Hebrew poetry in particular, one thing is clear about the Psalms, and that is that they speak clearly to the reader or worshiper with little need for additional explication. Even if the translation is somehow erroneous or the context is misunderstood, there is an immediacy and intimacy to the Psalms that gives them their unique power as religious literature in numerous times and places for well over two millennia. There is considerable truth to the observation by biblical scholar James Kugel that those who use the Psalms in their devotions participate anew in their interpretation and even their composition. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.